It's a privilege to be with you this morning, open the Word of God to you. I wanted to start by just uh, repeating uh, an encouragement that Austin mentioned uh, this evening. Six o'clock, we'll be uh, back here, and Abner Chow has been going through a series on the book of Genesis. It's been just so helpful, uh, so encouraging. So uh, please come back this evening. And as we've been going through that series, I've been thinking more about the life of Moses, the author of Genesis and the rest of the Torah. And really, (laughs) Moses is just this unique character, isn't he? I mean, just a man like no other. He was chosen from his birth. He was miraculously protected uh, as an infant. He was raised in Egypt's palace. He defied Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And he works these amazing miracles, turning water into blood and frogs and gnats and darkness and parts of the Red Sea. He goes up on a mountain that the Israelites can't even touch When he comes down from the mountain, his face is shining so brightly that the Israelites are terrified of him. An amazing life. He's the first one to write a part of the Bible. He's also a songwriter. We already read Psalm 90. But another one of his greatest hits, of course, we find in the book of Revelation when it says that those who conquered the beast were singing whose song? They were singing Moses' psalm. Pretty amazing. And yet, despite all of his greatness, the Bible says that Moses was the humblest man that walked the earth. He was an exemplary leader, a type of the one to come. He, he patiently bore with the wicked, complaining people time after time. Remember, just days out of Egypt, they were already saying, let's go back to Egypt. I'd rather be a slave of Pharaoh than a servant of Yahweh. And every time he runs to God and falls on his face and pleads on their behalf. You remember when Israel complained and when they rebelled that God sentenced them to death after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And it was so bad that at least twice God had had enough. God said to Moses, he was ready to annihilate the people of Israel and start a new nation with Moses. And every time Moses displays such humility falls on his face and intercedes for Israel and saves them from extinction. And in Numbers chapter 20, if you have your Bible, we'll be in the book of Numbers chapter 20. The 40 years of the wilderness wanderings were up. The last of the first generation had died out. In fact, Miriam and Aaron both die in this chapter. It's time to enter into the promised land. And, and what do you suppose happens, right? Does this second generation of Israelites, the, the children, do they learn from the sins of their fathers? No, they, they complain. They say, there's no water. I'm thirsty. I wish I'd died with my parents. Everything seems as usual. God promises that he's going to give them water and Though he had commanded Moses to strike the rock to bring forth water last time at Horeb, this time he tells Moses to speak to the rock. However, Moses hits it twice. You know the story. God judges Moses severely without mercy and without partiality, tells Moses that he must die and not enter the promised land because he had rebelled. When Moses later on pleads for God to change his mind, God gets angry and tells him to be quiet. Now, I don't know if you remember the first time that you heard that story. I do not. But I do remember the first time I read it to my children. And it is just shocking. 
Like, if you're just reading through the narrative and you don't know what's coming, I mean, this is Moses. I mean, Moses has never disobeyed, really, in the text before. You're like, God, really? Moses? Your friend? After everything he's done, he's going to die and just for hitting the rock? I mean, it seems a little bit strict, doesn't it? It seems a little bit severe. And I would venture to say, if that is your first reaction, it's probably because you have yet to understand the holiness of God. You have yet to learn the lesson that Moses did after this story when he writes in Psalm 90 that no one fears Yahweh as much as they would fear him if they understood his wrath like they ought to understand it. And I would also venture to say that if you think God should have shown Moses a little bit of favoritism for being his friend, that the root cause of that is probably that you're hoping and thinking that maybe God's going to show you a little bit of favoritism as well. So I'd like to just analyze this passage this morning. We're going to focus on verses 10 through 13. We're going to divide the text into just two ways that God acts to deepen our fear for him. Two ways that God acts to deepen our fear of him. First, we'll see blind mercy and then blind justice. Blind mercy and blind justice. To get us a little bit into the context, we're going to read starting in verse 1. We'll read Numbers chapter 21 through 13. That says the word of God. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. Thus the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had breathed our last when our brothers breathed their last before Yahweh. Why then have you brought the assembly of Yahweh into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. And Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to them, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rock, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. Thus, it shall bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before Yahweh, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses raised his hand high and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with Yahweh, and he proved himself holy among them. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word, desperate for you through your spirit to open our minds to understand it. Would you 
illuminate us this morning and help us to see the glories of who you are and all of your holiness. And Father, would by your spirit you transform us and change us into the image of Christ, that we could be like you, full of all your glorious and wonderful perfections, your grace, your justice, your righteousness. We long to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to verse 10, I want to remind us a a few things that we read in the context that will help us understand the paragraph. Notice in verse 1, Numbers 21, it says the whole congregation came there. Now, later on in Numbers, we're going to see there are 600,000 soldiers. So we're talking about at least 2 million people that are here gathered around this rock. It says they came to Kadesh. Kadesh is at the north part of the Sinai Desert, near the border, really, of the Promised Land. It's the exact place where 40 years earlier, Moses had sent the spies to scout out the land. You remember? They get right up to the kind of the border of the Promised Land. They send the spies in to look it out, and then they sin. God condemns them to 40 years. They head south into the wilderness. They They wander around for 40 years, and now they're back to where they started. Now they're back to Kadesh, and they're now coming to the end of that time, the end of those 40 years. And we know that they're at the end of the 40 years because both Miriam and Aaron die in this chapter. And Numbers 33, 38 tells us that Aaron died in the 40th year of their wanderings. And notice that for Moses in particular, the, the trial that God brings to him here is, is really twofold. At the end of verse 1, we see that Miriam dies there and was buried there. And then at the beginning of verse 2, there's no water for the congregation. And I just want us to notice something that should be obvious, and that is that this is not a coincidence. God is sovereign. Who is the one that gives life and takes away life? It's Yahweh. And, And who is it that was leading the people by a pillar of cloud by day and by a pillar of fire by night? Is it not Yahweh. So who is it that took the life of Miriam at the exact moment that he decided to lead the people of Israel back to a place where there was no water? Yahweh. This is a difficult trial for Moses. Miriam was his sister. We don't know of another sister. This is probably the sister that saved him from the Nile 80 years prior. He loved her. Moses had to have been filled with all kinds of emotions at her death. Oh, and there's no water which is kind of a big deal when you're in a desert leading two million people. Does this sort of thing ever happen to you, that God brings a trial to you at the exact worst moment? Well, worst from your perspective. God does things in the best possible way to encourage us to trust in him. Well, how do the people respond to this trial? I I think if we're not reading through the narrative from the beginning, I think the reader is supposed to be wondering, questioning. I wonder how this second generation of Israelites are going to respond to the trial that their fathers faced. I think the, the reader is supposed to be wondering, have the desert wanderings really fixed their complaining hearts? Has this discipline of Yahweh changed them? Are they going to get to enter in the promised land because they're better than their parents, because they deserve to enter the promised land? Well, verse 3 shatters (laughs) that idea, verse 3. Thus the people contended with Moses, a 
a word used a few times in Hebrew in this paragraph. It's uh, why they name it Meribah, same root word that means contend or to quarrel. It's an insurrection. It's a rebellion. So now the trial is kind of heating up. Not having water for two million people is one thing. Dealing with an insurrection of two million thirsty people and all their animals is quite a different sort of thing. And notice at the end of verse 3 what they're saying. Oh, I wish we died with our parents in the desert. Why did you bring us out of Egypt in the first place? We should have died at the beginning of these 40 years and avoided (laughs) these terrible 40 years we had to be with you. Verse 5, this is an evil place. End of verse 5, notice how childish they are. You promised us pomegranates. We're in the desert suffering. They mentioned three fruits, figs and pomegranates and grapes. That's intentional. Those are the three fruits that the spies brought back from the land in Numbers chapter 13. The point is, You tricked us, Moses. This has all been a lie. You wanted to kill us here. So in summary, these Israelites, second generation Israelites, are rebellious unbelievers just like their parents. How does Moses respond? Well, verse 6, same way he always does, right? So humble, so obedient. He falls on his face before God. And God, immutably gracious like always, verse 7 and 8, gives a promise. A promise with simple and clear instructions on how to obtain it. Verse 8 says, Moses, look, three things. Just take your rod, assemble the people, and speak to the rock. Nothing complicated. Moses does not have to take notes. And it really is amazing, right, as a quick point of application, how quickly we complicate God's clear instructions, do we not? He gives us very clear commands, do this, do not do this. And we say, well, I mean, in our generation, considering these factors and our culture, maybe we need to contextualize it a little bit and present it this way. Now, God's commands are clear. We just need to obey them exactly as they are. So what does Moses do? Well, at the beginning, it seems like we're just as always, right? Verse 9 Verse 9 says, Moses took the rod from before Yahweh. And then notice that last phrase, just as he had commanded him. I mean, everything's great. Verse 10 even, it starts, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. That was the first two stages. Grab your rod, assemble the people. And that's when we get to our first point, blind mercy. Blind mercy. Notice the stage is set. Everyone is ready. Ready for Moses to obey Yahweh and save the day, just like always. They're going to get to behold the wonders of God. And then verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly for the rock, and he said to them. And in that word, them, Moses has rebelled for the first time. Moses has disobeyed. Because God told him to speak to the rock, and he spoke to the people instead. And then, He compounds the problem. There's always various layers of sin here. He says, listen now, you rebels. Of course they were rebels, but God didn't tell Moses to say that. Then Moses adds, shall we bring forth water from this rock? And finally, verse 11, Moses strikes the rock twice. How could Moses, the man of God, do this? Well, we don't know his heart, but I think 
without too much speculation we can imagine, right? Moses had put up with a lot. (laughs) Forty years of childish complaining. And this new generation, they're the ones that are going to enter the promised land. And Moses seems to be thinking that people just do not get it. They just don't learn. And the current program, the current method is not yielding results. And if I just give them mercy as God is suggesting and they get the water they're asking for, they're just not going to learn. What they need is a fiery rebuke to help them understand how terrible their sin is. And by rebuking Israel... Moses, in that moment, became a rebel himself for not believing, not trusting God. Moses thought he knew a better way, a better way to transform the people. He lacked faith in the sufficiency of the Word of God to accomplish its purposes. Does that not happen today? Are we not tempted to do the same? God says, I am holy. Preach a message of repentance. And we say, Well, no one's going to want to believe in a God like that with a message like that. Let's just tell them about his love and that he has a wonderful plan for their lives. Well, that's nonsense. That's unbelief. That's not trusting in God's word. People will be saved by God alone and therefore only through his methods. It is prideful unbelief to think we know a better way than God. And we know that unbelief is Moses' sin here. We'll get there in a second, but notice the first thing that God says to Moses and Aaron in verse 12. Because you did not believe me. That's their sin. It's the sin of unbelief. Every time you disobey, every time I disobey, we demonstrate a lack of faith in the sufficiency of God's word. Not trusting God's word is not trusting him. And And, you know, God doesn't need to explain to us all the why we need to obey. You know, I wonder, as I'm reading this text, I wonder, does Moses know that the rock that followed them from which they drank was Christ? 1 Corinthians 10.4, does Moses know that? I mean, some people say yes. Exodus 17.6 says that Yahweh was standing on the rock that Moses struck. That would be Christ. But... I don't think that was something that was revealed at this point. I doubt Moses would have consciously struck the rock twice if he had known. But but that's the point. That's precisely the point. We do not know all the why. And we don't need to know. Like Moses, we don't know why. Like Job, we aren't privy to the celestial conversation that precedes our pain. But... Running the universe is above our pay grade. We don't always get to know why God's doing what he's doing. If we have his command, we have enough. And if we disobey, it's a serious crime. Like I said, when Moses screams out, you rebel, he becomes a rebel. We see that in verse 24, Numbers 20, 24. God says at the end of that verse, you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. That you is plural, speaking of Moses and Aaron. It's a serious thing to God. So everyone in this chapter is a rebel. Everyone in this chapter is demonstrating unbelief. However, notice the most amazing thing in God's blind mercy. It says there in verse 11 that Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. So Yahweh did not give them any water. 
God judged them like he did their fathers, gave them exactly what they deserved, and they all died in the desert. That would be justice. But what we read is actually quite the opposite, isn't it? It says, and water came out abundantly, abundantly, enough for two million people and all their livestock to drink. How unexpected, how merciful. And as a side note, this, my friends, is why pragmatism is always sinful, because Yahweh's mercy is blind. God does not bless based on performance. God's grace is not related to obedience. Pragmatism says, if it works, God must be pleased with it. God must be blessing it. Oh, it fills the church. That's working great. Let's continue. So the pragmatists would be there at Kadesh. And they see the water flowing and they say, Moses, hit it again. It's working. Completely ignorant to the fact that Yahweh was angered by Moses' rebellion and disobedience. He gave them water not because they deserved it. He gave them water, verse 12 will tell us, because he was fulfilling the promise he made to their forefathers. And he is Yahweh, and he always fulfills his promises. So never judge an action based on whether God blesses it or not. God blesses us in spite of our rebellion because he's so amazing. Only ever judge an action based on its conformity to this book. That is our only standard. So let us learn this lesson that Moses had to learn the hard way. It doesn't matter if God's commands sound ludicrous. I mean, think about the command. Moses, speak to the rock and water will come out. Does that make any human sense? Does that make any logical sense? Of course not. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you prosper doing something. It doesn't matter if you get maligned. The results simply do not matter. The results are irrelevant because God does not dispense his grace upon your efforts, but upon his perfect character. So the only thing that matters is obeying God's word exactly as it is written. There's no excuses. And look, I mean, if anyone ever had an excuse, Moses has some good excuses. I mean, it's the psalm writer that says that Israel provoked him to it. But God doesn't say to Moses, look, I mean... Okay, it's all right. I know Israel goaded you. I know they were provoking you. So I'm going to judge you less severely. No, he expects more of Moses because he was his friend, just like he expects more from us because we are his adopted children in Christ. There are no excuses for disobedience. So if God tells you, speak to the rock, speak. If God tells you, do not slander, then you shut your mouth to your own hurt and you seek to be like Christ who when he was reviled did not revile in return. You obey this book no matter the cost. Nothing matters except obeying God. He is worthy to be feared. He is worthy to be obeyed in everything. So we've seen God's blind mercy. Obviously, here in Numbers 20, it's a, it's a temporal, it's a temporary mercy. It's a common grace to receive water and to not die physically. But this is a principle. We're going to apply it to ourselves as well at the end because even God's eternal loving kindness and his grace works on the same principle. that He gives it not to those who deserve it, not to those who earn it, 
but by those who receive it in Christ based on Christ's righteousness. Let's move on to, to point two here, which is God's blind justice. God's blind justice. Verse 12. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So in verses 10 and 11, God shows blind mercy to Israel, blessing them even though they don't deserve it. And now in verse 12, God shows blind justice in condemning his friend. You did not believe me, it says. The verb there in Hebrew, to not believe, means Moses did not trust that God is true, that God is faithful, that God is trustworthy. It's the same verb used in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The point is that Moses, who is a believer, and that is the pattern of his life, in this exact moment demonstrated lack of faith. When you disobey God, you show a lack of faith. And specifically, God says, you didn't believe me enough to treat me as holy in the sight of Israel. What does that mean, to treat me as holy? Well, holy, you remember, just refers to God's separateness, that he's different than us. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 6 that God is holy, holy, holy. That means that he's full of glory, full of grandeur, full of majesty. That his perfections are magnificent. He's so different than us. And here's the point. It's God's word, exactly as God says it, that perfectly displays all that holiness and all that grandeur and all that glory and majesty. And in the moment we tinker with it, in the moment we touch the word, and remove something or add something, even the slightest detail, we tarnish the perfect revelation of God's glory in the eyes of those around us. When Moses does not obey God's word exactly as God prescribed, he was acting like a little child finger finger painting over a Rembrandt, thinking that he's making it better. (laughs) In the moment you touch that painting, you've already diminished. It's beauty and it's perfection. This word is as good as it can get. It perfectly demonstrates God's perfection. So, so how did Moses do that? How did, God, how did Moses not show God's holiness? Well, a few observations. Let's think about Moses' words. Remember there it says, Hear now, you rebels, he's exhorting them, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, some people say that the only thing wrong that Moses did was hitting the rock instead of speaking to it. But that's, that cannot be true. And we know it's not true for two reasons. One, God sentences both Moses and Aaron to death because of their rebellion and only Moses struck the rock. So their words have to be also sinful. And actually explicitly in Psalm 106.33, it says that Israel provoked Moses and Moses spoke rashly with his lips. So God takes issue with the words that Moses is using here as well. And to illustrate that, I just want to compare two things that Moses says before God works a miracle. So here, when he's about to bring the water forth, he says this, Shall we bring forth water from the rock? 
And now listen to Exodus 14, verse 13. God is about to part the Red Sea, and Moses stands before the people of God and says, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. Which of those responses shows the glory and the majesty and the holiness of Yahweh, in whom is salvation? God shares his glory with no one. There is no we in Yahweh's salvation. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. My glory, I will not give to another. It's an amazing truth there. So Moses sinned because he did not shine forth God's glory in that moment. He inserted himself. And in so doing, he did not treat God as holy as God deserves. Every time we disobey, we do that. We show too much of ourselves. And God takes this very seriously. Because Moses' unbelief made Yahweh look common. and made Yahweh look like us. Moses' anger made Yahweh look like Moses. That's unacceptable. That's the root of all idolatry. That's Psalm 50, verse 21. You thought I was altogether like you, so I will rebuke you to your face because I'm not like you. The root of all idolatry is to imagine that Yahweh is like us, and he is not. And we see that so clearly here in this text, do we not? Who among us would show mercy to complaining Israel and then judge our friend Moses? Would any of you do that? Only Yahweh would do that. He's different. He's perfectly just. Notice verse 13. Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with Yahweh and he proved himself holy among them. So Moses did not show God's holiness to the people. So what does Moses do? What does God do? God judges Moses and shows himself even more clearly to be anything but common. And he says, you shall not bring the people into the land. I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, Moses sins basically one time in this whole book, and God judges him blindly, severely, without partiality. Very unhuman-like. And I think that the emphasis of that final verse is the reflexive nature of that last verb, that Yahweh proved himself holy. He did it himself. He did it by himself. It's sort of the the summary culmination of the whole passage, that they did not display God's holiness, so God did it alone in spite of them. Moses refused to show God's holiness by showing mercy to Israel. So God showed just how holy he truly is by showing mercy to Israel and then judging his friend Moses. And that makes God very different from us. Right? We, we judge everything based on favoritism. And God loved Moses, so we assumed he's going to treat Moses like we would with some favoritism. Right? Every time someone criticizes, criticizes Moses in this text, like Yahweh comes and defends him. He's like, why were you not afraid to speak against my friend Moses? But then when Moses sins, he gets treated like everyone else. Because sin is sin and God is just and holy and jealous for his glory. And that's a good reminder for us. 
Because if we're surprised by how God judged Moses, we're going to be even more surprised. It's Hebrews 10, 29 that says that we're going to face an even more severe judgment than those in the times of Moses because we've partaken of the new covenant. We know of Christ's blood shed on the cross. We know of the spirit he sent to us. To whom much is given, much will be required. The point is that God's judgment is blind. It's blind to who we are, but it's also blind to what we can do. Right? And this is, this is really important because normally when, when people talk about a judge, people talk about salvation, they think they can kind of build up credit for a few mistakes, right? I mean, if you ask someone on the street, like, you think you're going to heaven? Will you end up in heaven? They'll be like, well, I mean, look, I'm not a perfect person, but I think you put my works in the, in the balance and I've done, the good things I've done outweigh the bad. Well, that doesn't work that way with God. Moses demonstrates that. When Moses sins, there's nothing he can do to, to change that. In fact, like I said in Deuteronomy 3, Moses says, I pleaded with Yahweh at that time, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. But Yahweh was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. It doesn't matter what you do afterwards. The consequences of sin are irrevocable. And I think as Christians, we're particularly vulnerable to fall into this sort of error because we reason, well, I'll sin and then I'll ask forgiveness and it will all be covered. The blood of Christ will cleanse me perfectly. Very careful. Be very careful with that sort of reasoning for two reasons. First, because that's exactly the sort of rationale that has led to the apostasy of many who thought they were forgiven and washed by the blood of Christ when in actuality they never knew him. And secondly, though the cross of Christ has cleared us from eternal condemnation, it does not save us from the temporal consequences of our sin. And Moses demonstrates that fact. Moses will not be facing eternal condemnation in heaven for this rebellion, but he did lose his reward. He did have to die. Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. If you think you you can sin and not face any consequences, you think you can mock God and you are wrong. More wrong than you can imagine because Yahweh always wins. And that's the point of verse 13. That last phrase, right? It's Israel contended with Yahweh. Israel fought with Yahweh. And who won the fight? Who wins? He proved himself holy among them. They did not show Yahweh as holy, so he did it himself. He wanted to announce to the world that he is the great I am. That he can fulfill his promises. Promise that he made to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. He wanted to show mercy to this rebellious people and show, demonstrate his grace to the world. So Yahweh wanted mercy, and Moses wanted severity. And who won? Yahweh showed mercy to the people and severity only to Moses. God wins. The people receive their water. God accomplishes his plan. Nothing can interfere with his plan. Sometimes when I think of God's holiness, his glory, I think of a freight train coming down the tracks. And you can get on and enjoy the ride, or you can get pummeled. 
But you're not going to stop it. You're not going to slow it down. You're not going to divert its course. Yahweh will glorify himself. Well, in conclusion, like so many doctrines that we love, when understood correctly, the fact that God shows no partiality, the fact that God's justice and God's mercy is blind, should bring us great fear and trembling if we sin, but also great peace and joy when we trust in Christ. So on the one hand, God's impartiality should cause great fear for those of us who do not believe. Because if you think you're going to get into heaven by some other means, if you're reasoning like, I've tried to live a good life, you know, I've done more good things than bad. If you're saying like, well, I may not show fruit all the time, but I have good doctrine, that's going to save me. I come to Grace Church, that's got to mean something, doesn't it? No, no, it doesn't. Not at all, not even a little bit. And I don't know what sort of arguments you may conjure up, but what I know is this, God's justice is blind. He hates sin and he will judge every sinner. He will judge every human being without partiality, without favoritism, and every single sinner will receive judgment for all eternity in the fires of hell. You say, wait, Josiah, but God is merciful. So maybe I'll get lucky and he'll show me some mercy. Well, no, it, it doesn't work quite like that. The mercy we're seeing here in Numbers 20 was this temporal mercy, right? This common grace of giving them water. Right? He causes his sun to shine for everybody. and He causes his rain to fall down on everyone. But if you're thinking you're going to get the eternal grace and loving kindness of God, well, God only dispenses that through one man, through the man Jesus Christ. And that's one of the greatest lessons we learned from this text. And that's that no one could lead you to heaven. No one can get to heaven. Not even Moses could, right? Even Moses, as great and wonderful as Moses was, not even Moses could bring the people of God into the promised land. And that shows us that we need a better Moses. We need a perfect Moses. We need a Moses who never speaks rashly. We need a Moses who believes at all times. We need a perfect mediator, a perfect redeemer. We need Jesus. And here's the great news of this passage. If you believe in this greater Moses, if you believe in Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the creator of the world, who came to earth and lived the perfect life that we could not and died the death that we deserved, the man who was raised to the right hand of the Father, if you believe in that Christ, then the same way that God's justice is blind, you'll find that God's mercy is blind. Because it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're a convicted criminal dying on a cross. It doesn't matter if you're the most worthless Gentile woman on the planet. If you cry out to Yahweh for salvation, God promises to judge you impartially according to the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And that is great news. You see, it's, it's necessary here from Numbers 20, as hard as it is to accept it first, it's necessary to see that God has the ability to judge his friend blindly, objectively, and partiality, because that's the only hope we have. We're rebellious. We're sinners. If God can't judge us blindly according to the righteousness of Christ, we're hopeless. 
The fact that God can look at me, a filthy, wicked sinner, and yet amazingly show me grace solely on the basis of Christ's righteousness is something no human judge could ever do. In Hebrew, the the idea of being impartial literally is that you, you don't see the man's face. Partial is that you're looking at their face when you judge. Impartial is you don't see their face. So when we think about that moment that that you're going to stand before God. One day I'm going to die and I'm going to stand before Yahweh. Any lesser judge would say, okay, come forward, pull out the books, see, oh, wow, Christ's righteousness. You're, you're perfect. Great. And look up. Ah, oh, Josiah, right? I remember you. I remember what you said to me that night. I remember what you did to my son. You're going to burn forever. That's what we'd do. We'd hold a grudge. We'd show partiality. Not Yahweh. He's not like us. He judges us impartially according to the righteousness of his son, according to his son's perfect life, because we are in him through faith. That is great news. That is great, great news. And that's why we celebrate this table. Because Christ accomplished it all for us on the cross so that God can adopt us into his family and love us eternally, only and exclusively based on what he's done, has accomplished on our behalf and not on the basis of this ugly face and all the sin that we've committed. Let's pray. What a God we serve. You are amazing, Father. Your character is just astounding. And we marvel at your perfections. We marvel at your grandeur. And we thank you that you have made a way for us to know you through Jesus Christ, the image of our invisible God, the splendor of your majesty. And we praise you in his name. And we thank you for this time. We can come to your word and be corrected. We lament the fact that so often we disbelieve your word and we disobey. We pray that your spirit would strengthen us to live in humility before you. That we would live in such a way with such obedience that the world would see that you are holy and that you are great and that you are worthy to be feared. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.